BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Don't know if you've heard by now, but the Miami Dolphins somehow... Are three and zero? Get out of here! Are you serious? They're three and zero. Unbelievable! Right. Well, they were supposed to win three games the whole year, according to the national media that didn't listen to three yards per carry and five reasons sports. (laughs) But they're three and zero. People are now putting them up like number four in their power rankings in the entire NFL, and they're playing the one and two New England Patriots on Sunday at one o'clock. And to celebrate, because we knew that this was going to happen, we knew that the Dolphins (laughs) would have a two-game lead on the Patriots. Actually, that's not true. We told the people over at Texas Roadhouse and nobody might show up for this because the Dolphins (laughs) would be 0-3, but they're 3-0. And so we want everybody to show up at noon, or sometime thereabouts, at noon at Texas Roadhouse in Miramar, just west of I-75 on Miramar Parkway. It's on the Dade-Broward line, so no excuses. If you like Dade, if you like Broward, easy to get there from any location we're gonna have food specials we're gonna have drink specials we're gonna have giveaways plan on actually having some five reasons hats if i actually get those things this week we're gonna give some of those away too so come join us texas roadhouse we brought more than 100 people last time we'll have the outside bar again so texas roadhouse miramar get some fried pickles get some ribs get some chicken get some steak whatever you want to get and obviously beer and drink specials and watch the dolphins take a three-game lead on the new england patriots up at foxborough We'll see you on Sunday. Welcome into the latest episode of the Five Reasons Podcast. I'm Ethan Skolnick here, as always, with Chris Whittingham. Now that you have found us, make sure that you subscribe. Depending on the podcast app that you're using, either hit the subscribe or follow button. That will make sure that you get all of the older episodes that we've done, as well as every new episode as soon as it posts. And as far as those old episodes go, a bunch of them that you'll find in there is our very popular Heat Stories series. So we started this out actually by talking to the sideline reporter, Jason Jackson, and then we moved on from there. So we've had Tony Fiorentino. We've had Eric Reed a couple times. We've had Ronnie Rothstein. We've also had some players. So we had Udonis Haslam and Mario Chalmers. And one of the things I wanted to do here was go back in time a little bit to those early teams because the Rothstein episode was so popular with a lot of people who maybe didn't grow up with those teams or weren't as familiar with those teams. And so what we wanted to bring in was the first Ironman power forward in Heat history. But the first one was Grant Long. And Grant joins us from Detroit today. Really appreciate you doing this. I know a lot of these memories for people are still fresh, but we want to kind of refresh them a little bit today. So Grant, thanks for doing it. Yeah, I'm glad we were able to connect, man. This is this should be fun, just uh, taking a walk down memory lane. Yeah, no doubt. And Ronnie certainly did that. I want to tell you, Grant, the one thing about Ronnie, um, I had to teach him how to download a podcast. Uh, that 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 was that 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 was a bit of a chore. Um, but once I taught Ronnie how to do it, he started texting me relentlessly, asking me if he had more downloads than Fiorentino. So. Always a competitor. Always a competitor. Always a competitor. He he was complaining on the podcast with us, Grant, about not getting enough calls with those early teams. He was still complaining about the officials thirty years later. Um, I told him he can't get fined for it now. I don't think, but he kept going on about that. So I want to start with that, actually, if we can. So let's go back to nineteen eighty-eight. And when you first join an expansion franchise, you're coming out of Eastern Michigan, had a successful college career, and now you're going into this brand new situation with a bunch of players who were pulled from virtually everywhere, like expansion draft, guys like Pearl Washington, guys who were drafted like Ronnie Cycli. What was sort of your first impression of the Miami Heat 
that was actually, I think, my second airplane flight when I when I came to Miami. So obviously, I was kind of over, overwhelmed with flying. I I had a fear of flying, but obviously, if you're going to play in the NBA, you've got to get over that very quickly. So I was able to do that. But to be drafted by by Miami, first of all, was completely right up my alley. I, I knew that there was going to be an opportunity for me to make the team. Going into my professional career, the Lakers were my favorite team. I followed them all through high school, followed Magic Johnson ever since the 79 championship over uh, Indiana State. So the Lakers, were, they were my favorite team. My dream would be be drafted by the Lakers, play alongside Magic Johnson, and ride off into the sunset. But as I thought about it, at that time, the Lakers were stacked. They were winning championships. Here I come, second-round pick out of Eastern Michigan University. More than likely, I'm not going to make that team. They're not going to cut James Worthy, Byron Scott, A.C. Green. They're not going to eat their contract for me. So I looked at that as maybe I had an outside shot of maybe making the Lakers. But when you think about the Miami Heat, and all of a sudden they're an expansion team and they're getting players from everywhere. They're getting pretty much the 12th guy from every of those expansion teams of the teams that contributed their players. And then everybody else is drafted. So I looked at that at that as several opportunities to make a team when there's nobody that's proven when we got there in in 1988 all those guys came from some other team some other guys were drafted but at the end of the day nobody was proven so I felt like that gave me a great opportunity to make the Miami Heat team how did you get over your fear of flying if you're going to play in the league if you really want to play at the top league in basketball you want to play with the best Obviously, you're going to have to fly. It's not like football where you play once a week and you can take a bus and be there by the time the team gets there. You know, you're playing every other day, sometimes back-to-back games, but you've got to fly. That's the only way if I'm going to make it into the NBA. And I got over that fear very quickly. It, it, it took me about four or five flights, I think, you know, where everything went nice. And you've got to remember, coming from Detroit, I, I live five minutes from the airport, Detroit Metro Airport. And the year before I came out, there was a horrific plane crash right over the airport and that just exacerbated my fear of flying i'm thinking no way am i going up in one of those things i mean an airplane crashed right in my backyard literally 500 yards from my backyard so that started my fear i already had a small one at at that point anyway but then that just really took it to a whole new level and then the very next year i get drafted and i have to work myself i didn't have to see any doctors or anything like that but i had to really work on myself to get over that field. So I want to take you back a little bit to that draft. And I'm looking over some of the guys who were picked. We go back to 1988. And obviously the, the Heat took Ronnie Cycli at number nine overall. You were picked. Not in- a bad pick. No, no, worked out okay. We talked to Ronnie about it. And we also talked to Ronnie about how he had to get Ronnie to uh, – we also talked to one Ronnie about how he had to get the other Ronnie to do a bunch of things in practice. So we'll, we'll talk to you about that too. But so he was picked number nine overall. You were picked in the second round, 33rd overall, but I'm just looking at the games played for guys drafted then. And again, for people who don't remember this, there were three rounds then, not two. So there were actually three rounds, including a guy who went in the third round that year, Anthony Mason, who ended up having a, you know, the late Anthony Mason ended up having a very productive career. But if you look at total games played for the 1988 draft, where do you think you ranked? I would probably say in the top 10 at least. Second. You played, you ended up playing the second most career games of anybody picked in 1988. The only guy who played more games than you, and it wasn't by many, was Rod Strickland, who was picked 19th overall by the Knicks. And I, I got to admit this, Grant, I shouldn't tell my listeners, I was a Knicks fan at the time. Um, oh, no. I was, I, I was, I was, because I, I was living in New York, and that was a very controversial selection because that team already had Mark Jackson at that that's time. That's right, that's right. And it was a very, because Strickland obviously was well-known up there in New York, as was Mark, but Mark was coming off a rookie of the year season playing for Hubie Brown. Taking Rod Strickland was very controversial, and he ended up playing nearly 1,100 games, including one season for the Heat. So when I I tell you that, and we go back to what you were thinking at the time, which was, don't get drafted by the Lakers because I might not make the team. What kind of perspective does that put it into in terms of what you were able to accomplish over those next 15 years? I'm sitting here right now in awe and in shock because I had no idea of that accomplishment. I knew that I was I would be up there because of the games that I played and, and you know, the minutes and all that kind of stuff playing 15 years. But I certainly, when you think of all the guys that came in that draft, particularly in the first round, some, some stellar names and 
you know, I, I have been able to surpass them when it comes to being or games played. I'm sitting here in shock. One of the things that I read about you in, in sort of preparing for this interview was that given the fact that you came from a place where you just wanted to make a team and you, and you thought that you might struggle to make the Lakers, it seemed like your ethos throughout your career was, I'm going to outwork everyone. So in a league in which everyone is trying to outwork everyone, how did you manage to accomplish it? Because I didn't feel like everybody was out there trying to outwork everybody. Mm-hmm. I've always had this feeling that at the end of a basketball game, there are three guys that people talk about. After every basketball game, if you watch it, after every basketball game, there are three guys that everybody talks about. The guy who scored all the points, the guy who had the most rebounds, and the guy who worked hard. I don't know why that is, but they always single out that guy, and they always say, well, you know what? He didn't get a whole lot done, but he worked extremely hard. Very seldom does that happen every night. And I understood that if by working hard, you know, you could you could beat some guys. You could beat some more talented guys if you just worked hard. Because I understood coming from basketball that everybody didn't do it. They just relied heavily on their talent. Or they expected somebody else to do the grunt work or the hard work. And I tried to make my living off. I always tried to outwork people. I got a sense of if this guy looks like he's tired, I'm going to go a little bit harder. I'm going to run a little bit faster. I'm going to push a little bit harder. I'm going to be more physical. I always looked at that as an advantage. So the one thing that I always tried to pride myself on was being in shape. I always said if I can't outrun and outwork people if I'm not in shape. So I always made sure that I was in the best physical shape that I could be in if I was going to take on the 82-game schedule of a regular season and outwork all of these people. Because at the end of the day, my talent level was not that of a Ronnie Sykes, Danny Manning, Larry Johnson, and those guys. So my advantage was to outwork them, and that's what I tried to hang my hat on. Grant, let's go to that first training camp. So you're in there as a second-round pick. Ronnie's a first-round pick. We mentioned some of the names earlier that were there, too, Pearl Washington. When you looked around at that camp, I know it was new to you because you hadn't been around an NBA team. Did you think it was going to be as much of a struggle as it was at the beginning? Well, I would say the first couple of practices and maybe even going into the summer league because I did play in the summer league and I realized that there were some teams, some guys on that summer league team who had bigger names than me. And then I realized that back to my original point that everybody doesn't work hard. And then I felt like my hard work was putting me ahead of a whole lot of people that were trying to make the team. So I didn't, I didn't gloat at that. I just felt like, boy, I could really do this because if they're looking at how hard I work and yet I'm still being productive at the same time, there's no way that I should be cut from this team. And I continued to work, and, and, and the numbers started to add up, and good things started to happen. And I noticed, you know, after a few games, Coach Rossi would leave me in the game a little bit longer. He put me in the game at certain points of the game. And I'm thinking, okay, I must be doing something right, and I'm earning his trust that he's putting me in these situations versus the other guys that maybe have a bigger name and maybe more offensively talented. But they're sitting on the bench in a crunch time situation, even though it was a summer league and we're all trying to make the team. That really gave me some confidence to know that going into camp in October, that I can continue to do the same thing, even though the, the, the summer league roster was full of guys trying to make the team versus the October veterans training camp was, was there and compiled of guys who had already been on the NBA, but a few guys who had been drafted in the, in the previous draft. So I felt like my hard work and my effort would still you know, put me in the mix of making the team and having a very good chance of making the team. And I'll say, you know, I had success early on in, in, in the training camp, and I just felt like that was going to be my opportunity to make the team. Now, having said that, I remember playing well, and by my standards, for about three or four games. This is actually the, after the season started. And maybe I had a stretch where I didn't play well two or three games, and I, after that game, I'm, I'm nervous. And I'm, I go to Dave Wool, who was the assistant coach at that time, and I asked him, I said, so does that mean I get cut now because I didn't play well? And he said, no, 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 it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. And he said, no, you just keep doing what you're doing, and you're going to have a long career in this league. Just keep doing what you're doing. Grant, what were your first impressions of Ron Rothstein? What was your welcome to Ron Rothstein moment? Well, you got to understand, I knew Ron Rothstein being from Detroit. He was the Detroit Piston assistant coach while I was in Detroit. So I had a, a, a very good understanding of who he was. I'd met him already a few times. My uncle John Long played for the Pistons for a long time. Time. So I was very familiar with all of those guys uh, with the Pistons staff. And then to see him come over, you know, and be the head, first head coach in the Miami Heat coming from Detroit, I felt like there was a commonplace for both of us because we had some familiarity with one another. 
and I understood exactly what he wanted because he was the defensive guru behind the Pistons teams. So I understood that if I could play defense and work extremely hard, that would be something that he would look at and say, wow, you know, I got to keep this guy on the floor. He, he's, he's built from what I come from, so to speak. And that's exactly what happened. I started to play well, started to play hard and play defense and play with a relentless effort. And it just endeared him to me by with that effort. But then that first season doesn't go the way that you want to, particularly at the beginning. What was that, that initial losing streak like and then finally winning your first game? 17 in a row, man. 17 <laughs> in a row. <laughs> I remember going or, or hearing David Letterman in his monologue. I mean, just like every game we lost, he had something to say about it. We became the, the talk of the town on late night television, so to speak. I wouldn't say the talk of it, but the, the joke of it. And, uh, you know, it, it was all in fun, but at the same time, you know, we, we were offended by it because we were giving it our all, you know, and but there was nothing we could do about it. We just, things just didn't come together. And I got to give Coach Rothstein a lot of credit because he always continued to be positive and, and say, hey, guys, we're going to break through this. We're going to, we're really going to break through it. Just keep working hard, keep playing as a team. We're going to break through this. And you'll, you'll, you'll see when it happens, you'll have some success. But keep working, don't give up. He always tried to tell us that. So going through all of those things, the one thing that I remember very vividly is that you have to think our team, even though we had a few veterans, for the most part, we had first year and second year players that made up that team. We were all just happy to be playing. It was the NBA. Everybody had realized their dreams, so to speak. Yeah, we didn't think that losing would come like this, but yet we were still here. We're playing against guys like Magic Johnson and the Michael Jordan, Larry Bird and those guys. But we expected to win? Probably not. So we understood that. We were going to take our lumps. As long as we just competed and played hard, we were still in the NBA. And that was a dream that was realized. And I thought you know, like I said, Coach Rothstein continued to push us and tell us to keep working hard, and we believed that. And we felt like we, we would, at one point, get through it. Did we think it was going to take 17 games? No way. But how ironic that the first game we lost was to the Los Angeles Clippers, and the team that we broke the streak against was the Los Angeles Clippers on the road. So that was a, a, a good return of vengeance, so to speak. What was that locker room like after beating the Clippers and breaking through? The locker room? We didn't even wait to the locker room. We celebrated on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> It continued into the locker room, but you could tell, I mean, everything was released in that in that single victory. And it, and it came in, in, in a good fashion because we, we hung our hat on defense and we had to get a stop in order to win that game. And that's exactly what happened. We tell people and we tell young players today, and it was told to me as a young player, the defensive possession is not complete until you rebound the basketball. So we had to play solid defense on that final play, but yet we had to in the sequence by rebounding the ball. Everything was just perfect on that final possession for the Clippers where we played good defense, forced a difficult shot, and we rebounded the basketball. So everybody was elated at that. That was one of those things where you said, wow, he's been telling us just to stick stick with it, stick with it, do what you're supposed to do, do your job, so to speak, and you'll win basketball games. And it all came in fruition in that final play, last five or ten minutes of that game. Like I said, it was a close game, and to win a close game, after losing 17 in a row, you got to think about the confidence after losing 17 in a row. Sometimes it's going to waver, and certainly you think, well, here we go again. It's a close game. We're bound to lose it. But it all came together in that final game, in that, in that 18th game, rather, against the Clippers, where the confidence was there, we executed, and and pulled it out. It was, it was pure elation for everybody. I mean, the even the guys that didn't play. And I remember Pat Cummings, you know, running over and picking up Coach Rothstein. And it was like, it was, it was something to see because he was, it was like, wow, the, the monkey's finally off of his back. You know, he's probably thinking and having some doubt maybe himself, not telling us that, but you got to think after losing 17 in a row, there's got to be a little doubt that, hey, maybe we're doing something wrong here. Are we, are we teaching the guys the right way? Are we, do we have a lot of confidence in what we're doing defensively and offensively? Maybe we should change some things. I'm just thinking maybe as a coach, possibly he's thinking those things. And to finally get that win after pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing throughout that season, it finally happened. I was very happy for him as well. All right, Chris, both you and I have been doing a little bit more gambling of late. We're having a great time. We're not going to get into some of the results on my end here. I got to go <laughs> a little bit deeper into my deposit. But where we gamble is BetDSI.com. We do that because we've got our own dedicated promo code that our listeners can use. It's Reason101. That's R-E-A-S-O-N-101. 
101. We say that because one of the hosts in our network can't spell. So reason 101. <laughs> so go to betdsi.com. You will get your deposit matched up to $2,500. You can bet on the Dolphins up in New England this week. And I believe they're, what are they, a, a touchdown underdog? Is yes, that indeed. right? Chris? Yes, indeed. I, 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 might, I might be looking at the money line on that one just to see if it's a good enough price for me to go and bet it over at betdsi.com. Again, use the promo code REASON101. And look, and, and, and this is something that I feel like has been the case for gambling for as long as it's existed. But it just makes games more fun. I'm sitting around on a Saturday afternoon watching Louisville and Virginia cursing out Louisville because I had them on the money line away to Virginia. And it's like, wh what am I doing? Why, why am I so interested in this game that I otherwise would have zero interest in? And that is what sports gambling does for you. And I'm telling you, you will have a great time over at BetDSI.com. Live betting as well. If you want to get involved with while you're watching a game, you're thinking, oh, I, I think I know how this game's going to go. You can bet it live. You can bet literally any game on the planet. Listen, I'm a massive soccer fan. There are bets on the soccer page that I don't even know what these leagues are, where these games are taking place, where I can watch them on television, but I might have a few bucks on them. So betdsi.com is where you go. And be sure to use the promo code REASON101 to get your deposit matched up to $2,500. For part two of this, Grant, I want to transition a little bit to some of the guys that you played with during that period of time. So I'm going to give you some names and you just kind of give me what recollection comes to mind. I got a few names that are teed up. We talked about it a little bit earlier, but he was the first ever first round pick, Ronnie Cycli. I thought a player who was very misunderstood uh, during his time there, everyone expected so much from Ronnie because again, he had the name. He came from Syracuse. He was 6'11". And so many people thought he should just dominate. And he did have those games where he played above board and played at a very high level. But for the most part, the, the, most part, the consistent Ronnie Spikely wasn't a great player, but a very, very good player. And I, I thought people always wanted him to be great, but Ronnie was just very, very good. And sometimes it's hard to be you know, good or hard for people to look at you as good when they're expecting you to be great. But I thought he was one of those misunderstood players who gave us everything he had. It was a treat for me to play alongside him. I was, I was a big fan of Ronnie Cycle. All right, here's another name. Uh, and he passed away uh, relatively recently, but had a huge collegiate and high school career. Pearl Washington was on that first team with you. Pearl was one of those, those guys who you, you heard about you know, coming up through the ranks in high school and, and in college, we all understood as a basketball player who he was, and, and he had complete name recognition. And so to, to get on the team and he's there, now I'm waiting to see. You know, I want I want to see. You know, if, if this Pearl Washington guy is all that everybody says he is. And offensively, with the basketball, one of the best you're going to see. Obviously, he had a shortcoming defensively, and that's what he and Coach Rothstein always kind of got into it about his defensive effort, but he was something special with the basketball when he was on top of this game. Glenn Rice. Boy, that's, you talk about a welcoming committee. Played with Glenn, you know, all summer long in Michigan. We played in the same summer league. And then to have him come be a teammate, I mean, what what more could you ask for? I already knew what this guy was capable of as far as shooting the basketball and what kind of leader he would be on our basketball team. And to have him come at the time that he did and just give us a shot in the arm offensively. I remember his workout and... Billy Cunningham was there and Louis Chaffel was there and he was, we were at the University of Miami and Glenn started to shoot the ball right around 10 feet or so and just started making shots, making them, making them. I mean, all the way out to the guy was off the court and then, you know, standing in front of the bleachers, he was still draining shots. It was just an impressive display of shooting. And like I said, I wasn't surprised, but all the people in the gym were like, wow, this guy can really shoot. I'm saying, yeah, I, I already knew that. But uh, it, was a, it was certainly an impressive display of shooting by Glenn that day. Steve Smith. Oh, my. Again, one of the same guys coming from Michigan that I had already played with, played against Steve in college, played with him in the summer league basketball throughout the, in the summers in Michigan. And, again, to have someone of, of his caliber – understanding what he was, an unselfish player, a six, eight point guard who wanted to make everybody better. I knew it was going to make our team better. And, you know, it was one of those situations where I said, wow, this, this, this could only help us. We are going to be so good. It was so much optimism when Steve Smith was drafted to our team. And you mentioned expectations a little bit earlier with Pearl Washington. I can't remember a player of that era who came in with higher expectations than Harold Miner. And then the baby Jordan thing, winning the slam dunk contest, 
Why, in your view, did it not work out for him? Because I think millions of people thought he was baby Jordan, and he didn't. And everybody expected a glimpse of Michael Jordan. And to me, he was nowhere near Michael Jordan. It wasn't even comparable. I mean, yeah, he could jump and he could dunk, but he was nowhere in comparison to Michael Jordan as far as, you know, what he could do with the basketball one-on-one and, and the court savvy that Michael Jordan displayed. I thought that comparison was way out of line. And here's a little known fact. You know, I was really close with Harold Miner, still remain close with him. Everybody thought that Mike, he was trying to be Michael Jordan and that was his favorite player. But this will give you some insight of, of Harold Miner. Joe Dumars was his favorite player. Polar opposites, Michael Jordan and Joe Dumars. Polar opposite. Joe Dumars, very quiet, unassuming, just goes about his business and does his work and goes home. If you think about it, Harold Miner was the same way. Wasn't a whole lot of fanfare. Didn't do a whole lot of talking and stuff like that. He just played basketball and that's what he really wanted to be. Just the guy that just fit in, just the guy that played with his teammates. But he, I believe, in my estimation, kind of got snared in that comparison to Jordan and tried to live up to that. And I think that's where, if it went wrong, so to speak, that's where it went wrong. There's no way that when you talk about being compared to Michael Jordan, how do you live up to that? You know, he would have been better off just living or just trying to be the best Harold Miner that he could be. And I thought that would have been a very good thing to have instead of, uh, you know, trying to live up to the Michael Jordan comparison. But Harold's a very good teammate, an excellent teammate, an excellent guy uh, on and off the floor as far as a teammate is concerned. And in terms of the coaches that you played for uh, with Ron Rothstein, Kevin Lockery, when you kind of think of playing for those two guys, I think Ron Rothstein fairly clearly communicated his style, but how did you experience it as a player? I thought Coach Rothstein was, he didn't sugarcoat anything. He gave it to you straight. And I mean, he's, he's been in my face a few times. He, he, get, he got on everybody, but you understood what he expected. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Go for a run, take a nap, maybe check the stats of the latest Miami Heat game? I've got a better idea. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. I've benefited from therapy. I went through some life changes, major life events, had some difficulties, wasn't a believer in therapy, but it helped me and it can help you also. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Miami Heat today to get 10% off your first month. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com, slash Miami Heat. And I wasn't a stranger to hard work. So he always pushed and he always pushed, and I was always, you know, let's go, let's push even harder. Let's let's push to be even better. So I was always one of his, you know, biggest supporters of, of going harder, going longer in practice. Let's let's push harder. We need to be better. And I don't think a lot of other players understood that, you know, if you're going to get better, you're going to work harder. And, you know, some players just thought you could put on the shoes, put on the uniform of an, of an NBA team and just go out and be an NBA player. Yeah, you just, you had to continue to work at it. And Coach Rothstein had been in the business for so long, he understood that and that's what he was trying to convey to the to us as young players you've got to work hard if you're going to be better and you're going to stay in this league and that always hit home with me but like I said I was not a stranger to hard work anyway and then you segue into coach Kevin Lockery who was a former player and that was the first time I heard the term player coach and I understood what that meant as a player coach he always gave the players the benefit of the doubt and saying that, guys, you've been here before. You're, I'm a player. You've been, you're a player now. I shouldn't have to tell you to, you know, to go work hard. You already understand what it is. He just took a complete different approach where Coach Rothstein always drove home, work, 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 work. Coach Kevin Lockery was one of those professional guys that said, guys, I, don't have to, I shouldn't have to drive you to work. You're here. Go out there and compete and play as hard as you can. That's not something I, that I should have to teach you to do. So, you know, with some, some guys, if, you, if you're not, you know, understanding who you are, you'll take that as he doesn't care or he's not pushing us hard. Now, it's not a matter of him pushing us hard. You have to be a professional. You, no one should have to tell you that you need to be in shape. A coach shouldn't have to tell you that you got to go lift weight. A coach shouldn't have to tell you that you need to practice. If you're, in that, if you're at the level of an NBA player, you should already know these things. So, like I said, if you're not a professional 
in every sense of the word, then you're probably going to get lost in the shuffle of the coach locker room. But I thought he was an outstanding coach. We'll get back to our episode here in a second. But, Chris, I want to tell you about another new sponsor to the Five Reasons Sports Network. Do you want to get the edge over Vegas and the sports books? You got to download Bet. QL. It is available to you on Google Play, on iTunes, and it's the only mobile app that puts all of the important research that you need to make the smart bets in one place. Where do you find it on there, Chris? So I'm actually going through right now the college football bets uh, that, that are available on the weekend, and it's basically showing where the value is. So, for example, I'm looking at uh, Michigan taking on Northwestern. Uh, over at one of the sports books, Michigan is a 15-point favorite, but 95% of the betting action is on Michigan. And they're saying in their top trends that they actually have Michigan as a nine-point favorite in the game, which is a six-point difference. So they're recommending that you take Northwestern because so many people are pounding Michigan right now, obviously as a public team and a famous team, and a lot of people think that they're much better. And I think they just got done dominating Illinois, or I forget who they dominated, but they're such a public team right now that they're recommending that the value is in Northwestern. So it is a app that recommends value bets for you all across sports. Uh, the biggest value this weekend that they're showing is the Atlanta Falcons, who are five-point favorites over the Bengals, but they have uh, Cincinnati as an as taking 86% of the gambling action right now. So it's basically trying to find value for you. A, a lot of people kind of bet with their heart and bet with their emotions and bet, and bet based off of what they last saw. BetQL helps you bet with data and with information. It is a terrific app. Check it out in the App Store, whether it is the iTunes App Store or Google Play. BetQL is what you search, and you get the latest information on gambling so you can bet smarter. With the Heat, you made the playoffs twice, 1992 and 1994. 1992, I'm sure you remember who you played against. I'm sure you remember how that <laughs> went. Uh, what was it like going against, you mentioned him earlier, what was it like going against Michael Jordan in a playoff series at kind of the peak of his powers? Not baby Jordan, but proper Jordan. Proper Jordan. Let me tell you something. We had a watch party at my house that night to watch whether or not somebody had to lose in order for us to get in. And, of course, our, our prize was to play the Chicago Bulls. And that, <laughs> what a booby prize that was. So we had uh, we were, we're, we're, we're all excited that, you know, we, we get in. Somebody lost and we got in, I believe. And we, we're all excited about that. It didn't matter that we were playing the Bulls. We were just excited to, you know, after all of that hard work and after all the struggle, we're in the playoffs. And, you know, we understand what kind of spectacle that is and no bigger spectacle than it's going to be because we're playing the Bulls. So that, how, how big is that going to be? We're a team that's standing in the way of possibly a championship for that team. So obviously we're going out and we're thinking we'll be the team to shut them down. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And, you know, everybody's excited. And that first home game, oh, man, you couldn't hear yourself think in that building. It was so loud. And we, I think we got up 16, 17 points. Maybe, maybe it'd be less than that, but we were all so excited. It seemed like every shot we took went in. When you're playing in the playoffs and it's your first time and you're, and you're so amped up, one of two things can happen. Every shot you take is going to go in or your first two or three shots are going to go over the basket or fall very short. We didn't have any nervous energy. We were so excited. Everything we threw up went in. We were catching alley-oop passes, Ryan Shaw knocking down shots, everybody scoring. It was just like, we're getting ready to run away with this game. That was the first five minutes. Of it. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, it was like it was like the veteran status of the Bulls just took over. It was like, okay, they've had their, their fun, their excitement. They'll, they'll wind down. And, and, and we just couldn't sustain that energy you know, for 48 minutes, and they knew it. They just bided their time. And all of a sudden, when we started to slow down a little bit, that's when they were able to strike, and they just pounced on us and took the lead and never looked back. But it was, again, with all that being said, it was a great, great time, not only for the players, but for the franchise to be in the playoffs. And most people would look at that, hey, you guys got beat by the Chicago Bulls, you guys got swept. But think about it, it's the first time in the franchise history that we make the playoffs and we play, we're playing the Chicago Bulls, the eventual champion. Man, yeah, that's a pretty good story. It was a little better for you, though, in terms of how long the series went in 1994. And, and this is kind of a strange situation because you play the Hawks in the 94 playoffs and then you're traded to the Hawks uh, in a package deal in which in which Steve Smith goes the other way with you. So go through that experience, if you can, a little bit from playing them in a playoff series and then you end up flipping the rosters basically the next season. Yeah, that was that was something different. Obviously, that was my first time ever being traded. 
And, you know, so you got to get over that. You, you hear a lot of the veterans, you know, in the locker room and on the, on the plane rides who also, who have been traded. And they're talking about, hey, man, you know, don't worry about being traded. Just go play your hardest for whoever you're playing for. And, you know, you try to keep that out of your mind until it actually happens to you. And so it, it did happen to me. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm still in the NBA. Uh, that's I, I can't fault the Miami Heat for thinking that they need to improve their team. And I was a part of the uh, whatever the part that they needed was missing. I needed to be gone to make to make that happen. But let me go back. You know, I was one of those guys that you know ever since I got to the Miami Heat, it was always like you heard these things said you know about me. Well, he's good, he's fast, he rebounds, he works hard, he does this, he does this. I just wish he was a little bit taller. And I always said, well, why do I have to be a little bit taller if I'm getting it done? And it was it it was from it just seemed like from day one there was always a campaign to let's replace. We, we need to improve the power forward. And they would bring this guy in, that guy in, another guy in, another guy in. And I, I'll play them all. And I eventually ended up continuing to start because all the guys that they brought in, going back to my initial point, just didn't have the work ethic. They just didn't have it. And through practice and through the games, I outworked them. And the coach would call me in the, in the office and say, you're starting tonight. Oh, okay. Back to that again. So that was, that was a, a cycle that happened for about four years while I was with the Miami Heat at the beginning of training camp. If you, if you go with John Sally, it was Eric, uh, Alex Kessler, it was uh, Jeff Saunders, it was Tellus Frank. It was, it was a whole lot of power forwards that came and went uh, trying to trying to take my spot on that team. So then, then it finally happened. You know, Steve and I get traded to the Atlanta Hawks. And how ironic, like I said, like you mentioned, we had just finished playing them in the playoffs the year before and actually got into that big scuffle where I was suspended a couple games. And yet the very next season, the Atlanta Hawks expressed an interest in me along with Steve. And I'm the guy that got that, that started that big ball. So, like I said, it's the first time ever being traded. You just take it with the grain of salt and you move on. Uh, I was happy to be going with Steve, another guy, you know, from Michigan, first of all, and then my teammate that I'm very comfortable with. So it was, it was good to go with somebody that I knew and was familiar with. That that was, that made uh, made it a lot better as well. But the interesting fact about that is that we, had, we were in Phoenix when that trade went down. And a couple of guys had already been traded. And Steve and I are actually, we just played the Phoenix Sun. We've been there for three days in Phoenix, played the Phoenix Sun. And we're on the plane after practice. We kind of knew something was kind of hinky a little bit because our practice was about 45 minutes. And we literally didn't do anything. We, we played horse and guys just shot free throws. It was not a, nobody even got taped for the practice. It was just like a, it was a, it was a weird practice. So you just knew something was brewing. So we get on the airplane. We're literally getting ready to taxi and take off. And Coach Lockley comes up and he says, you guys might want to call your agents. I think it's going to trade. Even I say, okay, well, what do you mean by that? They, they open the door. Steve and I get off and we're, we're literally sitting on the tarmac on our luggage. What do we do now? So Steve calls his agent, which was Dr. Tucker. And Dr. Tucker said, yeah, you guys are going to be traded. So here's the deal. You can either go to Atlanta or go to, or go to New York. God bless Pat Riley, who was New York coach at the time. But, uh, we had heard all about the, you know, if you're going to play for Pat Riley, there's a whole lot of things that you got to do and that you can't do and this and that. He was like, he just ran a really, really tight ship. Not that I'm afraid of a tight ship, but the way the guy, the former players and the players that played for him described him, I said, I don't want to be tied to that. But Steve and I were sitting there and we said, we're going to Atlanta. So we, we, we declined the New York trade and ended up going to Atlanta, obviously. That's how we ended up there. Wow. I did not know that story. I, Chris, you want to jump? We had a question for you here that actually fits in perfectly. So Chris, yeah, I, I just wanted to ask, like, uh, would you have wanted to play for Pat Riley? Like, like, what, what, how do you think it would have gone? Do you think you would have, you know, worked well for him? You know what? Here's the thing. I, I would have loved to play for Pat Riley in Miami. But two things were that, that Pat didn't have going for him as, as far as I'm concerned. New York is one of my least favorite places. So I wasn't going there. And then... Like I said, if Pat Riley was in, in Miami at the time and I was at another team and they were talking about go to Miami and play for Pat Riley, I'm gone. I'm there. But I didn't like I didn't like the city and I didn't like what the team was doing at that time. So I'm like, now nah, I'm out of there. I'm gone. And then I think about how good the uh, Atlanta Hawks were the year before. They had just won the Central Division or they had won like 57 or 50, 55, 57, 58 games. I'm thinking, okay, we can certainly add to that. And so Atlanta was just – it just, it just – was right there for me. I thought that was a better opportunity for me to, and I was selfishly thinking a better opportunity. I knew Steve would be all right wherever he went. He was just that kind of talented player. 
But for me, the fact that they were getting rid of Kevin Willis gave me the sense that, okay, I could, I could step right in there and play and continue to do what I do. And that's exactly what happened. So that it just, it just worked out. I had some of my best scoring years with the Atlanta Hawks as well. So I was, you know, second in rebounding, I think third in scoring throughout my tenure there with the Hawks. So I, had, I had some pretty good years there. It worked out well for me. What's interesting about this conversation is because when, when I think of Riley's power forwards over the years, you know, whether you go back to, you know, a guy like AC Green in, uh, in LA, or you look at what he did with guys in Miami, whether it was, he had Kurt Thomas briefly traded him, but then PJ Brown, PJ Brown, and and then, you know, Udonis obviously now entering season 15. You know, when I look at it, I I view you as kind of in a lot of ways, the precursor to Udonis. I mean, in terms of style of play, a lot of the things you've talked about here, you know, in terms of being undersized and somebody always trying to replace you, like that's been the story of Udonis's 15 seasons. So I would view you as a perfect fit for Pat, actually. Like, I, I mean, I could have seen you being one of Pat's, as he calls them, forever men. So that was a question we were going to ask you regardless, because I was curious if, you you know, as you see, okay, so you turned down a trade to New York and then Pat faxes in his resignation in New York and ends up down here. Did then you have any, I know you couldn't control the trade, obviously, other than where you weren't going to go, but did you have any kind of pangs of regret at that point? Like, man, if the Heat hadn't traded me, I would have been playing for Pat Riley here in Miami. Yeah, you know what? When when I saw that happen, I instantly said, "Get ready to hoist that championship trophy," because he is just and and you guys you guys probably have an understanding of it, but players certainly have an understanding of of his commitment to basketball, and that's what you know I, I love about Coach Riley is that you know he he's a former player first of all, but second of all, he knows basketball and his commitment, his passion for the sport of basketball and winning. You, you want to be around that, you know, you, you, you want to be coached by that, you know, and, and going into Miami with the talent that they had, I said, he's going to make something special happen there. I, I already knew that he was going to make something special happen there just because of who he was, his basketball acumen, and again, his passion for winning and the sport of basketball. There's a rumor, I don't know if it's, you know, lure, or I don't know if it's a false tale or whatever you want to call it, but uh, in, in the, the player's world, you know, the rumor that he got on Tim Hardaway pretty good and, and, and Alonzo Morning, I think at halftime, he said he, he, he doused his head in the Gatorade bucket and to, to prove how, how passionate he was about the sport of basketball. And he, I guess he felt those two guys were not living up to, you know, what they needed to do. And I think the words were, don't, don't challenge me on this game because I'm willing to die for it, and I know you won't. And so when, when you hear stuff like that, you know, about Pat Riley, you have an understanding of just how much, or how high his passion for this game is. And, and I believe me, I have complete respect for him in that regard. Yeah, actually, that story is true. Um, in fact, we've had uh, – wow. who told us this? I mean, I'd heard it before because I, I got to be honest on this. P.J. Brown told me about it in the locker room. After it was Fiorentino. It but it was Fiorentino who told us, yeah. So, so Tony – Tony spilled the beans, but guys have spilled the beans on that you know, for years. That that is a true story where he he and it was actually you know where it was actually because Grant I know you're there right now. It was in Detroit. It was it okay. was in okay. it was in Detroit that he did that and uh, and guys have talked about it uh, since. I know PJ was kind of scared of him after that because it was like, <laughs> uh, <laughs> it, it, it struck him is a little bit crazy but uh yeah that that story is that story like a lot of riley stories is is highly accurate so you're on to something there hey i'm josh appel and i'm billy o'rourke and we are the hosts of five reasons sports network's pro wrestling podcast mark your territory where we bring you the hard-hitting well, wrestling. No, well not no we don't want to it's not too hard-hitting because you don't want to hurt the other guy it's more of a dance we're trying to do here we're trying to keep it protect protect the other guy yeah you want to protect okay the other so guy. maybe we'll go more in depth yeah that's good that's better smart your territory five reasons sports network's pro wrestling podcast with the most in-depth wrestling talk you'll find want to move on in the last part here with you grant just kind of on some rapid fire stuff uh, i mentioned him earlier i'm just curious what your thoughts are watching him from afar i don't even know if you know him very well but like i said i, I do feel like he's kind of the, the successor to you in a lot of ways here in Miami, what are your thoughts on Udonis Haslam? Honestly, I just think we're cut from the same cloth. Um, it, it's funny that you know when we when we've had our conversations, and he said he tells me, you know, I, I watched you the whole time I was in Miami and watching you play for them. I mean, it makes you feel old, but it also makes you feel like wow, you did reach somebody. You know, somebody was watching you and felt like 
I can do what he does. You know, I'm, I'm going to do what he does. That, that's the, I mean, obviously everybody's watching Michael Jordan. They're watching these guys and, he's, and everybody else. But how good is it to know that, you know, this guy was watching me. He, he was watching me and, and took a lot of what I did and enhanced it, got better at it, and, and became a champion, a multi-champion. You know, this, that, that does my heart good to know that a guy like him who saw himself in me and made it and, and developed it into something and, and took it further than I did. You know, that, that, that makes me feel great. And we have those conversations when we talk. There's so much mutual respect and admiration that flows between Udonis and myself when we see each other. It's, it's remarkable, and it's, it's awesome. Now, he calls himself the OG, though. I mean, if, if he followed you, he can't be the OG, right, Grant? Like, I no, mean... no, no, no. He, he can't be the OG. But I, I, I would say when you – because you mentioned, though, all of those guys that were Riley guys at the power forward position. Outside of A.C. Green, he's probably the guy that, 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 that has had the most success. Mm-hmm. under Riley with the, at that position. You know, so you would have to say, you know, it puts him right there at the top uh, when you talk about that kind of player. I mean, Charles Oakley is the, is mm-hmm. the pinnacle of bruiser, rebounder, enforcer, all of those things, but he didn't have the hardware that he kind of had. It's interesting because that gets to the next one I wanted to ask you about. So all of these power forwards we're, we're mentioning played at a time where the game was a little different, right? So the game has changed. It's more about threes now. Dirk kind of changed the power forward position, I think, irreversibly in terms of the way that those guys play facing the basket. How do you think you would have adjusted your game to play the four in the modern game? I don't think I would shoot threes, but I do think that I would be able to play on the perimeter. As my last three, four years in the league, I did. I, I moved from power forward too small forward. I played both positions. And that was the first time that I, I played a little bit while I was in Miami just as, as an experiment. But for the most part, I was a power forward until the last three or four years of my career. And that's when I played both positions. But and in and, and today's NBA, I, I would be more I would be more of a Draymond Green because I do feel like I could guard the perimeter players and I could I I still play today and I shoot I shoot better now than I ever did as an NBA player. So I feel like you know, as, as time went on, I would I would get better as far as my shooting is concerned. Now, whether it would stretch out to the three-point line, I don't know. But I would shoot well enough from the perimeter to at least stretch the defense out that way. So I would have no problem playing in today's NBA because it's, it's constant movement, first of all. They're always running up and down. That's something that I did anyway. I, I wouldn't have a problem doing it and playing, playing today's basketball. And for years, you were covering today's basketball as a Thunder broadcaster. Um, so you know the Oklahoma City situation pretty clearly. It was curious for your perspective on the decision that Kevin Durant made a couple of years ago, how you view it as a former player, but also somebody who knows that market really well. Well, I, I think there's two schools of thought when, when we talk about you know Kevin Durant's move. And I, I told people this when it happened. I said, Kevin Durant is more of a Golden State Warrior than, I mean, you, you might as well put him in a, you know, it was like they drafted him because being around him for that long allowed me to get close with him. And I like to play pickup games with Kevin Durant during the off season. And I understand what kind of player he is. He's very gifted, very talented, wants to win, but is such a team player. And when I, when I watched Oklahoma City through their progression and I watched them in that finals against Miami and I said, and, and they, and they, just became more predictable and more predictable and more predictable. You knew that at the end of the game, it was either going to be Russell or Kevin taking the shot. And it wasn't that it was going to be a play design. It was more or less, guys, give me the ball and you guys get out of the way. That's just not going to win you a whole lot of basketball games. And for me, I thought Kevin Durant was very frustrated with that fact because he was such a, he is such a team player. He didn't just want the ball to move out of the way. That's not how he operates. He wants some movement. He wants to to count on his teammates to do what they want to do. And it and, and, and just makes the whole team better if he's not the only isolation player. And so that, that move to move wasn't a surprise to me. The fact that he went to Golden State may be a surprise, but I wasn't disappointed. But I was surprised that they were able to get him more so than him leaving to go there. I was surprised that they were able to get him. But that does not surprise me that he went to play with that team because they, had, they have fun while they're playing. They're sharing the basketball. There's no bickering. There's no who's going to take this shot. They don't care who takes the shot as long as it's a good, as long as it's good basketball. And that's what Kevin Durant is all about. He, he doesn't care who takes that shot as long as it's a good shot. You know, as long as everybody's operating together and, and, and pushing for the same goal. If you go back to those days in Oklahoma City, 
that wasn't the case. Like I said, at the end of the game, they were very, very predictable. And if, if winning championships is on your mind, if you're Kevin Durant, you're saying, this thing, I've been here for four years, five years, whatever, not getting any better. We're still the same predictable team that we've been the last four or five years. Why do I want to stay here and, and, and waste away you know, my effort, and we're not doing anything. We're not changing anything. I, you know, I'm not surprised that he left. Like I said, he's, just, he, he's, he's built for that Golden State team more so than any team in the league, I believe. There's been some question about, well, once he wins his championships in Golden State, he's going to go to the Knicks because he wants to play in a larger market and he wants to do this. Kevin Durant wants to win championships. Why would he go to New York and, and, and build a team or try to build a team and, and wait four or five years trying to win a championship? That's not what Kevin Durant wants to do. He's about winning championships. And at the end of the day, if you're an NBA player, and I hear a lot of the older players say, well, we just wouldn't do that. I wouldn't go play for the team that just beat me. At the end of the day, we are trying to win championships. That's what you play this game for. I see that it keeps me up at night sometimes when I look at some of the guys who won rings. Even sitting at the end of a bench, they still have it, and I don't. So to see Kevin Durant move and, and win and play well, I'm, I'm, I applaud it. I, I'm applauding that effort. Yeah, there are some guys on those two Heat teams that it's still hard for me to believe that they won championships, but they have the rings and, and some other guys, as you mentioned, <laughs> do not. So what's uh, if you want to find Grant Long, you can find him at Grant Long 43 on Twitter. Wanted to ask you this. So what is next for you? I know you, you've obviously you've, you've done broadcasting, done sideline reporting. I know I'd read some stories where you wanted to get more into coaching. What's next for Grant Long? Yeah, amazingly, I, I've been trying to get into coaching for the last, I mean, literally ever since I've left the NBA. And I've not had one interview. I've not had an opportunity to coach anybody. And it, it's amazing to me that and I'm going to get on my soapbox, but I won't be there long, I promise you. Uh, it's amazing to me that some of the people that are in the NBA and coaching with no experience whatsoever, where they came from, I don't know. I'll give you a perfect example. And I, I love Lawrence Frank, but Lawrence Frank was a, you know, a manager with the Indiana Hoosiers. He makes it to an NBA team as a co assistant coach. All of a sudden, he's a head coach, and now he's the president or general manager of the Los Angeles Clippers. And yet they ask me, where is my experience? I'm inexperienced. Well, where does the experience come from being a basketball manager of a college team helping you get into the NBA versus a player that's played 15 years and you're asking, I don't have any, or you're telling me I don't have any experience in the coaching. I played 15 years. I'm just comparing myself to Lawrence Frank, who came in the NBA as a manager of the Indiana Hoosiers. And that, that's what I deal with. So I've been trying to get or trying to find a job in the NBA coaching rank, but it just hasn't happened. And I'll continue to I'll continue to push for it. But you know, if it doesn't happen, I'm very happy and content with broadcast. Gotcha. Well, that's Grant Long. Um, hopefully, at some point, a spot opens up on the staff down here. It'd be nice to have you have you down here uh, back in Miami. I think you've endeared yourself to even more people in Miami because you hate New York. So I, I think that was a success here. <laughs> here on the podcast. Uh, Grant, we really appreciate you doing this. Again, you can follow him at Grant Long 43. We hope to do more of these heat stories series also with some of your other teammates. I'm, I'm going to try to get cycly Grant. I don't know if I can pull him out of the club where he's DJing, but we're, we're going to try. Hey, he's spinning those records. Yeah, I know. I know. That's that's his thing now. We'll probably have Glenn Rice at some point, too. But thanks for doing it. And uh, and everybody, go back in our library. You can find all the other Heat Stories episodes. And at some point, we're going to patch all these together um, and, and kind of spotlight specific moments in Heat history. Thank you, Grant. Hey, thanks, you guys, for having me. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.